And uh, so know your character, uh, know the last session that's happening, and know what your character wants to do. If you are familiar with your character and as familiar with the setting as your character is, then you should be able to do anything. Now you're just reacting. You don't have a ton of things as a player in an old school game, especially that you're required to do. Most of the time, all you are is seeing the world through the eyes of your character. You're not necessarily making up uh, narrative aspects like a GM is. So you really only have this one focus, this one layer that you're on. And so try to be the best you can be on that layer. You know, don't necessarily worry about mechanics or rules uh, in as far as just knowing what they are, whatever they are, house rules or however it works. I think if you can do those things, those three things really, and they're all character specific, then uh, you've done your due diligence as a player. If you say the real life ends up your day My name is Che Webster, and this is Roleplay Rescue. Hello, Rescuers, and welcome to another interview episode. Now, the first thing I want to say is I'm really, really sorry to everyone who doesn't like long episodes, especially my guest today, who hates them. Look, I thought seriously about dividing this up into two, maybe even three podcast episodes, but I'll be honest with you, I hate it when podcasters do that. It is just about the most disruptive thing to the flow of thought that I think you can do and so I've always rather stick out that kind of long episode that contains the entirety of the interview in one long thing simply because I know that when I'm listening I can press pause and if you don't like that I'm really sorry but that's kind of the way I do things that's the first thing the second thing to say is my interview today is a fascinating listen but unfortunately due to some technical issues it got recorded in two sections that got divided um, and the first section unfortunately has me sounding a lot like I'm a Cyberman whereas my guest actually sounds fabulous. Um, so I'm going to just kind of have to suck that up. You will find the tinniness of my voice probably irritating at first but trust me after now you get used to it. It goes like that for about the first two thirds of this interview and then in the second part Actually, my voice gets back to normal because the technical issue kind of went away and it's great. So I just hope you'll put up with my tinny Cyberman voice and, you know, we'll get on into it. Um, So without much further ado, I guess I better get in there. This is season six, episode six, playing too seriously with Jason Hobbs. Jason Hobbs is the host and creator of the tabletop RPG podcast Hobbs and Friends and also host of his personal journal podcast Random Screed. In addition to podcasting, he has started streaming his tabletop role-playing games on Twitch. He is famed for, among other things, his Kalmata campaign and 
a recent foray into playing the RPG low fantasy game in the Midlands setting. Hobbs is a regular convention gamer and an all-round good egg, hailing as he does from the American Midwest. Welcome to the show, Jason, and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Jay. <laughs> you managed to make that sound really sarcastic. That was great. <laughs> I'm sorry. Not sarcasm at all. Totally honest. I'll just take your word for it. Are you well, sir, in these days of you know COVID and other things? Uh, I'm up and down, I'd say. Most of the time I'm doing pretty well, but there's always those down stages when you just don't know what to do with it, I guess, so... Yeah. It's that feeling of being in limbo, right? So Right, yeah, absolutely. No, and I and I know that right now you're trying to upgrade the gamerhood as well, right? Uh you got yourself a little bit of a campaign to what replace all this aging tech that you're using. Yeah, that's right. I uh I have my new focus right one two one, if you've ever heard of that before. It's uh pretty awesome. And uh my new computer isn't in yet, so I'm still on the old laptop, but Everything is definitely better, and uh, people were very, very generous and with helping out on that GoFundMe campaign. Uh, is that something that's still running? Can people chip in? Yes, it is. It's still going. Update the gamerhood. All right, guys. So you heard it. Right? If you like this interview and this chat, at the end of it, you go and you support uh, Mr. Hobbs's gamerhood, right? And uh, we'll put the link in the show notes. Okay, our topic for today arose, I think, if I remember correctly, from a Discord conversation we were having, was it was about February or March, um, about gaming as art, which sounds more pretentious than it probably is. Um, but I think we agreed, <laughs> at the very least, that while neither of us really mind sort of beer and pretzels, pick up style of play, you know, that kind of loose and free reading uh, game, we're both think seeking perhaps um, something more. Does that sound familiar, Jason? Yeah, for sure. It feels like it was a lifetime ago, but like you say, I think it probably was right before the COVID stuff, maybe. Yeah, it was. Um, and we, yeah, I mean, we were just talking about uh, how there was something we felt was perhaps missing sometimes at the gaming table. What do you mean when you talk about gaming as art? I would say I, <laughs> I've been called a serious gamer which is kind of uh, ironic because I'm usually uh, just a witty crack up most of the time. But uh, as far as the gaming goes, um, yeah, I feel like there is something more that I want out of it. Someone called into the screen when I was talking about it and thought maybe it was a validation for the amount of work and time that I've put into the hobby. I don't know. I almost feel like sometimes I want it to be to, <laughs> this sounds funny, but the characters when you are doing art are the player's characters, and I want them to be taken seriously for what they're doing, and so I feel like that edges more into art, whereas if we're not invested in them as players and game masters, then it, we're not really getting out of it what we could. So you're interested in the characters as themselves and taking those characters very seriously. But uh, I, I presume painting uh, and characterizing them uh, very clearly and then what being true to that in play. Yeah, for sure. And I have to say that the setting is a character as well, especially mm -hmm. in the type of games that I run uh, as West Marches. So. It is just as much a character as the player's characters, and there's a continuous growth, which some people would call the story itself, probably. But I like to think of it as the uh, environment as character. 
Right. Okay. How how can your game be? I mean, you're talking about you 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 know running games right now. You're you're streaming them on Twitch uh, regularly. How can they be more? What is it that sort of feels missing then? Um, I would. Uh, that's a good question, and I don't remember what we said previously. Um, but there is there is uh, an investment that is missing. I think when players have characters that their only goal is finding uh, creatures, killing them, and taking their stuff, we're missing that uh, that story arc for those characters and then it sells the setting short as well because you're not getting involved in the information or the exploration aspect as far as the lore goes you're only interested in finding a new place just to kill the creatures that live in it okay so really it's about you know going deeper than i mean people will use the horrible term like murder hoboing and all the rest of it <laughs> <laughs> um so okay so let's, let's just think about the styles of play because i know that you aren't against kind of pickup games um you know whether that be at a convention or whether that just be kicking around with your friends at home you know a couple of beers um let's, let's just pick apart the, the difference there then so when we're just being pickup what does that what picture does that paint in your mind so I would agree with you that most of the time a pickup game is more of a one shot, but the style of play that I'm used to with the campaigns that I run most of the time, I could actually place those a pickup game straight in there so it can still keep that uh, story going, at least as far as the character, as the setting goes, but not necessarily mm-hmm. the characters themselves, because some people do play it more as, hey, I'm never playing these guys again. Who knows? But I say up front. If you keep these characters and they survive, then we could play them anytime that you want. So it even maybe shifts the concept of a pickup game. But I've done it the other way as well. So I kind of maybe avoided your question a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't think there's anything wrong with any way of playing. I just know how I want it to be. And I believe how much better it could be if it was done that way. Yeah, okay. So to clarify, if I'm am I right in saying that you've taken Kalmata to conventions? Uh, so Kalmata is your West Marches style game. It's probably been the longest running one, I'm, I'm guessing. And you you would take that to a convention and run a a game, which essentially would be a one shot. But that's what you're saying is that's within the context of an ongoing campaign, an ongoing West Marches campaign, correct? Yeah, exactly. I run Kalmata online and I run at conventions. And occasionally, if I don't have enough people at my face-to-face game, we'll just we'll, they'll pull out their Kalmata characters and play that. So, mm. and then if the you know if you go to one convention and you see me and you never play online, you can still bring that same character back to another convention and play, or you can take them online and play in that situation. It's sort of a living West Marches campaign in that aspect. Yeah, and that reminds me of really way back when I returned to gaming in the late 1990s and 2000s. Um, I got involved with a friend of mine here in the UK, uh, Ian, who games with me on a Friday night still, you know, all these years later. But he was running games in Sabrenar, which was a UK-based living campaign uh, running at Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition and later on 3rd Edition. And, and that was very much that thing. They would go to conventions specifically to take part in the next part of the living campaign, you know, and everyone would have a character 
characters and then bring those characters back. And there was a quality of gaming there that was very different um, that was played very seriously, actually. I think people really did have a, a long-term arc. Is that the sort of thing that you know you are trying to um, or hoping to generate? Yeah, I think so. What I really want to do is have players invested uh, as invested in their characters as I am invested in the setting. That's really my goal, and I think that would uh, that's an action point that would achieve you know, this more artistic feel where we can actually get the depth of story, even though it's an emergent story that doesn't start with any preconceived notions at character generation, it uh, creates something over time. Good. Okay. Nice and clear. So I guess we better actually, if we're going to talk about art and artistic expression, we better actually think about the question of whether a role-playing game is a new medium for expression. You know, I've heard, I think I've made this assertion in the past that I think it might be. And I know that um, Andy Goodman over at uh, Grizzly Peaks uh, podcast, he believes that it's a new medium. I think uh, even the eminent Ron Edwards has said so in the past. What do you think? Are role-playing games a new medium for expression? I guess I would ask you to define new. I mean, role-playing games <laughs> <laughs> have been around for quite a while now, 40 years, right? So yeah. um, 50 years, I guess, maybe getting on there. But in the beginning, it was definitely more of a fantasy adventure game as opposed mm. to a role-playing game. But I think that uh, the style of play I'm using is much closer heralding back to that those early days as well. And mm. I mean, in all honesty... If writing is an art and drawing pictures is an art, uh, creativity is uh, probably the most leading factor in deciding what's art and what isn't. And there's a lot of creativity that goes into a certain style of uh, playing role-playing games for sure. What makes it interesting for me is the act of play as the uh, medium for expression. So... I guess if I think about it, if I could write the story, uh, the emer you know that's emerged from our play, I could write that up, but that wouldn't be the same as the act of play. I could draw pictures that would illustrate the world that we're playing in, but that's not quite the same as when we're describing things in play. And I could, I suppose, uh, you know, I can think about using all of the other artistic tools that are and mediums that are out there to express what I'm experiencing through a role playing game. But for me. That act of play when we're at the table and there's a bunch of us talking, um, and we are, you know, engaged in the game. That is the moment of creativity for me. Now, I'm not sure if that just sounds like a load of pretentious baloney. What do you think? Uh, no, I think it is a shift, maybe in um, paradigm, because usually art, art, or artistic uh, effort is singular. And now we're collaborating. Everyone's doing their part. The players know their characters, not necessarily a huge backstory, but, you know, what would motivate them in any given situation so they could react to it in um, in a writer's sort of way, you know, in, inside the narrative that exists and is given by the game master. So a lot of times you're not sculpting with someone else. You're not painting with someone else. When you're doing a role-playing game, you have this collaborative uh, creative, uh, creative effort that uh, can transcend or create a synergy that doesn't necessarily exist when only one person does it. That is the part that I love is, yeah, like you say, we could write 
as much as we want, but I only write up to a point of, all right, this is the situation. Like some writers, if you read about how they do their writing, they'll have characters and they'll put them in a situation and then they just let those characters react however they do and then let, let it go where it goes. And so that's similar to, uh, you know, the art at the table, but, um, it's different because uh, more heads, right? More heads can be better and sometimes more heads can be worse. But overall, I've found more heads can be much, much better. I guess the most sort of similar thing in terms of this would be a kind of improvis improvisational theater. Um, you know, uh, some people on a, they're working on stage and maybe they have a loose starting point and they go from there in terms of improv. But um, the role-playing game is still different, right? Um, because there are other tools uh, being brought to the table. Yeah, so, I mean, you could call it like a jam session. So a bunch of band artists get together and they're just riffing at the same time. But hmm. And sometimes it can be fantastic. Uh, but I think it's harder than it would be uh, within you know, this, uh, I'm not going to say sandbox, but within these narrowed confines of an actual game system where everyone's pushing their creativity through that, it helps you get a more cohesive whole as far as, you know, your creative effort goes. Yeah. Okay. So what we are saying then is that it sounds to me what, what you're saying is that you would like the players to come to the table. Um, and I feel this way, by the way, as well. So you're not alone, um, but to come to the table, um, taking their characters and the game and, you know, where we're going to play as seriously um, as we are as, you know, dungeon masters, game masters, referees, right? Yeah. And I think that doesn't mean you can't have laughs or yeah. have fun and have a blast. I think when we say serious to me, it really means let's have your character interact with its five senses that are being uh, described by the game master and have them react in a realistic, as far as that character goes way. So whatever happens, even if it's some crazy far out, tiny little chase uh, attack you with, you know, your chase smiling <laughs> face on it, that could still be, you know, funny and great, but it also could be, okay, how, what are we going to do? Oh, we don't want to attack this guy. He's so friendly and nice, but he's attacking us. So what are we going to do? So you keep it within the confines of the story. And that's what I mean by serious. Cause I mean, I'll make all sorts of crazy jokes that I consider outside of the game, even mm -hmm. some punny tributes inside the game, but I still want the characters to react realistically sounds goofy, but as invested in that actual story as possible. So if that's having a dance off with, uh, you know, <laughs> nine toes, then so be it, but make it a real dance off. You know, I mean, when the devil went down to Georgia, he was playing a fiddle, but it was still a very serious interaction. Yeah. And I feel, um, that there's a difference here, isn't there between the player's experience of the role playing game and the character's experience of the world. Um, and I guess that's what we're calling out. We want, we don't mind the players, you know, having a really good time and joshing around to some extent, but we do mind that the characters remain faithful to where they are in the situation they're in. Is that sounding right to you? Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, even when the er, in the early heydays of G+, and they created flail snails, I'm kind of going off the 
the track here, but I think it has a very significant point. The whole purpose was uh, this concept that no matter what happens, our characters are going to react like it's real to them, even if it's as crazy and as gonzo as it can get. See, that's where some of these terms come from and why they are uh, considered negative to some people like whimsy or Mm. comedy games or teen games or any of that. Some people like those, but I feel like they tend to be less serious. The characters are taken less seriously than they could Mm. be. Yeah, absolutely. And also I think um, there is a a requirement to uh, go deeper uh, through play. I don't quite know how to explain this, but that's what it feels like to me to immerse steadily and perhaps slowly but into character and into the world. Yeah, it's one thing to say that exploration is a pillar of play, but there are different aspects of exploration. I think the one that most people use is very shallow on just very surfacey. We're going to travel around and do whatever comes towards us. We're not necessarily going to try to look deeper and figure out maybe why these things are happening or why our character is reacting the way he is reacting or they are reacting in order to make it consistent or, you know, what has happened. And part of that could be, I'm not going to say bad GMing, but a lot of players that I play with are kind and gentle souls and they don't want to push too deep because they're not sure what the GM actually knows. So they're, <laughs> they, they just purposely do that because that's what they've learned over time. But then when you run into a GM who really only does things because it fits in, and if it doesn't fit in at this moment, they'll make it fit in later as you go, as you play. But Mm. that's what I've found. I mean, when I talk, that's especially something that happens with players who are used to playing in more like they usually only play adventure paths from fourth edition or fifth edition or whatever, Mm. where they're not necessarily having to think in order to do the story because they're just playing out this so-called railroad that, you know, these authors have created. It it doesn't matter really what they do. They're still going to get to the next place and it's going to, they're kind of be forced through quantum ogres or whatever you want to think of, however you want to think of it. They don't have, they don't really have the player agency that they have in a, a different type of game. And when you have that agency, as a GM, you really are me specifically, I guess I shouldn't say all GMs, but I really want them to use it and come up with, you know, things that can help drive the story. I want it to be as player driven as possible. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I think there are two little issues I want to pick up on in there. So obviously the the more recent thing you just said about, you know, there being a, 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 a plot line that the GM is driving and I guess you see, like you said you see that through the adventure paths we'll come back to that in a second but there was an earlier point you made there which is interesting to me about how deep is what the GM has and what does the GM know you know like I know that in sometimes when I've come to the table I have been very on the fly and I would suggest I've just thrown a very simple sort of situation at my players and when they start to probe and I have I'm very fortunate to have players who will push and probe into the situation and try to dig into, um, you know, the the environment that they're in. Uh, that, that I'm horribly exposed because I don't actually know 
the answers to all the questions that they've got. And I'm having to like, you know, make that up on the spot, really, really dig deep. Now for me, I can, I think I can um, improvise quite well. So, you know, I can, I can do that for a while, although it is incredibly taxing, you know, in, in terms of energy, but uh, it's better when I've come thought and thought about it, right. That I've come and I know what's who's, who's in my village and who's who, and I know what the relationships are. But I know that if I put that effort in, it isn't always going to be worthwhile in that the players won't necessarily dig. Does that make sense? Yeah, there's a there's a fine line between prepping too much because you don't want to prep so much about things that isn't going to happen because nothing really happens that doesn't happen at the table as far mm. as the characters and players are uh, concerned. But you want to have enough stuff there that as a GM, you're capable of winging it. Now, to me, that's what real play for the GM is, because you have people talking on Twitter or wherever that says it's flawed to only have uh, to have GMs and players. Everyone's a player. Yes, everyone's a player, but the GM's play is significantly different than the players. But Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean as a GM, if you if you're digging and you can't come up with something that you can't source the table and say, hey, what do you guys think it would be? And they can, you know, depending on your play group, some people like that aspect to step out of playing their character and help write the narrative. They could tap it in to say, oh, hey, I, I think it should be like this. And then you can go forward with that or pause. Then you take five minutes, you know, back in the day, you'd go have a smoke or have a beer or whatever. Now I have to go to the bathroom because I'm old and I got a bad bladder. But <laughs> <laughs> it's an opportunity uh, when those questions come up to turn things. And like like you, I would say I'm mostly improvising, uh, but I have gone back over my notes after a game and said, oh my God, what am I, <laughs> what am I going to do with this guy? And why did I call him a semi-lich instead of a demi-lich? I don't know, <laughs> but it must mean something. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And of course, when you set it at the table, it becomes real. And um, I mean, that's the thing for me that I love about the uh, the, the role playing game experience is that um, sometimes those little slips are absolutely the things that create great opportunities. Uh, I can I can think recently that I. Um, I, I completely screwed up in a recent game of Dolmenwood. Um, in the players were in town and they were like, uh, "We wanted to trade some gems," and I was like, "I'm not going to let you sell gems that are worth like two thousand gold pieces in this tiny, you know, shoestring village. That's just not going to work for me. You know, that doesn't feel." right somehow um but what i did is i got them to they needed the money to buy some gear so i had them transport a sword um and what i hadn't thought about as i was sort of saying it's coming out of my mouth was that they're going to want to know what that sword is right and they want to know all about it and it's obviously from what i was saying it was going to be magical and suddenly that was all thrown <laughs> upon me. Now that next session became a joy because I was able to go away and create that thing, you know, that item. And I, and uh, just from using random tables, actually, it turned out to be an intelligent sword. And that's something that's never come up in my play ever before, but that was great. But we had this wonderful session. It came from a throwaway remark, which came from a player question, which, you know, it's this thing we're talking about where the, the narrative, if you like, is building from all of the decisions we're making together. Uh, and my screw-ups are in there. Yeah. And that's the thing you would have never, I'll never say never, but you probably wouldn't have came up with that particular story without those players. And so that's where the collaboration comes in. And that's why random tables are such wonderful tools because it's Mm. for me, it really makes me feel like I'm playing the game as opposed to telling other people a story. 
So mm. I, I, I love that stuff. And it's countless the number of times that's happened, uh, especially with a game like Kalmata, where I have to ask up front because they can literally go anywhere on the island that they want to. Yeah. And <laughs> I do a lot of prep work, but not necessarily enough that covers anywhere they want to go, right? So, <laughs> yeah. Well, especially if you want it to be meaningful, you know, like not just, oh, crap, I better quickly start rolling on tables here. And, and it, it, you know, I know there's a difference between when I have asked my players, again, back in Dolmwood recently, you know, I've asked my players, what do you think about doing next time? And they're faithful to that. They will, they will say, okay, we're going to go from this village to that village, you know, and we think we'll probably use the road. Um, and okay, so I can I can prep around that right, and I can roll up some encounters ahead of time, and you know that's all random. I, I'm not necessarily determining which order they're coming in or whether they'll even come up, uh, but I've got a couple of things up my sleeve, and then if it really pushes it, I start rolling on tables anyway. Um, but that works for me, you know that sort of approach, and it means I'm not driving it along a prescribed route. So I have a question for you. So mm. you talk and uh, mention a lot about GURPS. Mm. So GURP preparation is a little more extensive than like OSE in Dolmenwood. So did you have your games the same way when you ran GURPS as you are with OSE now? Well, I'm in the process of actually trying to bring those uh, tools from, you know, classic Dungeons & Dragons. So OSE, uh, in old school essentials, is a re- restatement of bx right basic expert dnd and that itself coming out of the root of original dungeons and dragons and um those are all the tools i've been rediscovering so you'll know because you played one session or a couple of sessions actually two sessions i think or three in thal right which was my first step yep. in this direction with gerps uh, and i've parked thal in the last week or so because i'm ready to move to the next stage with my development but um what I did was I, I built a dungeon, you know, uh, and I did that through random generation. So I actually took the tables from, um, I think it was from um, the old skull stuff, actually. Um, and I rolled up a dungeon, basically. And then I stopped that using random tables from uh, Dungeons and Dragons Basic Edition. Um, so that was where it started. And, and then what I was doing was saying, okay, so now I'm going to just, the word convert isn't right, adapt to GURPS, those things. So I was very fortunate because I had Dungeon Fantasy role-playing game, which has a monster book. So I was able to basically take some pre-designed monsters from you know, GURPS Dungeon Fantasy role-playing game and just drop those into my game. Um, but what I did as well is I broke away from the 250-point super, pretty super-powered, um, you know, pretty incredibly highly-powered characters which would be equivalent of about somewhere between i don't know seven and ninth level dungeons and dragons yeah um i took those and i pegged it right down i just made it a random generation so that there was a roll dice you know i think i gave you 60 points for your core stats and then we rolled dice to see what skills you got and we kind of got going i've streamlined that now even further down to an entirely random generation process um and you know what it works it just works and of course in terms of prep once I've designed a monster, it's in my game. Once I've kind of adapted something across, it's there. So it's just on record. And the more I play, the more I have. So it's building incrementally. Um, 
in terms of how I'm playing, I'm using the OSE structures. I'm using the, the, what I call the game structures of the, of the Mega Dungeon. I'm now moving to the game structures of the Hex Crawl. You know, that whole uh, using a, a, a map, um, we're using a hex-based map, and uh, the guys decide where they're going. We're rolling for encounters. I've got random encounter tables and all that stuff. And I think the only difference would be that I'm using D6s exclusively when I'm running GURPS. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. I was more curious about like if you randomly rolled an encounter and didn't have that built in GURPS, what would you do? Yeah, I absolutely had them ready. So in Thal, you know, like I'd sort of suggested that there was a, um, on 3D6 all the time. So um, there was a sort of six or less chance of there being an encounter in this room or a nine or less or a 12 or less, depending on how likely I wanted it to be. And I'd I'd make a note of that on my map. So for example, you remember those spiders that you encountered yep. early on? Um, that was a That was a nine or less chance of there being the spiders in the room when you first arrived or whether it would just be webbed. Do you know what I mean? And as you went towards their lair, that, that possibility increased to 12 or less and then finally 15 or less which is almost certain but again i didn't want the certainty i wanted it to be random and then how many spiders that was a roll of dice as well um so i decided that there were spiders in the dungeon or rats in the dungeon that kind of stuff but i hadn't decided where they were when you would encounter them when they would come up and that for me um meant that i was able to play the game too yeah yeah yeah, exactly. That's a that's a pretty cool idea in a concept. I'm surprised that uh, through the long history of GURPS that they haven't ever maybe come up with those specific rules for you to use, or have they? And that's you are just implementing them. No, they haven't. Um, that's the thing. I mean, there's there's flavors of that in GURPS Dungeon Fantasy. There's little clues in that direction when you read uh, some of the materials. You know, there's the, the idea of it being six, nine, twelve, or fifteen or less is something that's in the Dungeon Fantasy role-playing game uh, for random encounters and random monster tables are there and those kinds of things. They've brought those things back. They've ported them back in. But um, the reality is that, you know, GURPS, I think, I, I mean, this is just me speculating, but I think GURPS came out in 1986 at the height of that switch away from what we're talking about with sort of what people, for want of a better term, use a sandbox play and, you know, that emergent storytelling that we you and I both seem to enjoy, they were shifting from there towards, you know, that plot-driven game. Dragonlance is often blamed for this, isn't it? You know, DL1, Dragons of Despair. And I played that back in the day, you know. And I think GURPS was, you know, with its point-by character generation system, uh, which is now, you know, the only system of character generation in the fourth edition of GURPS. But if you go back to first edition, there was a random generation bit. You know, I found it very swingy when I re-invoked it. So I've I've been tweaking and playing with it, but I've now got it to a what I feel is quite a sweet spot where there is a, a reasonable minimum level of character ability, but you know a bit of flexibility, and um, it works. I think sometimes I think we 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 lock ourselves mentally in with my game plays this way, and that's that's you know it's kind of prescriptive that that's the way you're going to play this game. Whereas uh, when I talked to Sean Punch, who's the line editor for for GURPS, you know he was saying no no no, our rules it our GURPS is a descriptive it sort of describes how to resolve things, a way of resolving things if you like. But it's up to you as GMs to choose which bits of this game you use and how you play with it and. He he doesn't want it to be prescriptive, you know. He wants it to be that's cool. bunch, you know, a bunch of tools for you to use, and that's what I've embraced, you know. And I really found that to be to be useful. So now my game with GURPS, I think, is freer. Um, and you know, right now I'm just playing with no magic, no no powers, just kind of learning the game bit by bit, and I'm ready to add in those details, you know, that 
what's the magic system like? Well, let's go play with it. And of course, with GURPS, I can make my magic system any way I want to. Actually, there are a number of options. But um, it, again, through play, I can discover how they work, how they feel, where they fit. And coming back to what we're talking about with the art, you know, the canvas for me is quite uh, large. You know, I can I can do a lot with it um, as long as I have players who are willing to come with me. And and unfortunately, with GURPS, it's a game that people prejudge uh, as being played in a particular way and in a in a particular style that I don't think it was ever really intended to be. That's that's interesting. I mean, uh, we could say the same thing about Dungeons and Dragons. I think because the paradigm yep. has certainly shifted as far as that goes, but. Yeah, I mean, I had fun, and I, a lot of times as a player, as long as you know what your character can do, you don't really have to know all that stuff unless you want to run the game. There is a certain amount of system mastery that will come and make you a better player in an adventure game type of yeah. style as opposed to more role-playing, but uh, I, I certainly have no fear of it. I, I mean, I played Hero for quite a while and was running Fantasy Hero in a very similar way that... I run, you know, old school essentials now. And uh, mm. most people were not used to it from that hero group. Like you say, it's like, oh, how, I mean, they have books that have everything made out for you. I'm, hero and GURPS have uh, similar philosophies in game design, I think, yeah. uh, compared to more of like a D&D or something like that. But yeah, I was fascinated. Yeah, I, I find like going, I'm playing OSC right now. I've, I've taken part in uh, Gavin Norman's Donnellwood playtest. Uh, he's preparing the new campaign materials for Kickstarter later this year. And we're playing in that. And um, so I just decided I would run the first four sessions I would run uh, Old School Essentials, which is, you know, as I said earlier, BX restated just for the listener's sake. Um, and I'd play it rules as written. And that's been really illuminating um, and very freeing. I mean, the game is uh, kind of quite loose and freewheeling. There are a lot of decisions that you have to make as a as a dungeon master, you know, as a at the table, you know, as you're roughing away. Um, but I found that fun. And uh, what we've done a few times is again something you alluded to earlier. We stepped out of the game and had a little discussion about how do you want to how do you want to do that. So, for example, the sleep spell. Um, in the first time that came up, we had to decide exactly how do we picture that, you know. And um, I had a vision. I explained it to my players and described how I thought the spell would work. They kind of went, "Yeah, that sounds all right." And that's what we stuck with. We made that ruling at the table, and then we're sticking with it. Um, and that's been fun to do. And um, I think what I'm saying is, it doesn't, doesn't force you down any particular you know way of playing. It just just recognizing that your set of rules is a tool set um, with more or less things in it. You know, and um, don't be afraid to play with the tools. I guess is what I'm coming from. Yeah, I mean, when we talk about styles of play, I think you can do any system with them. And I have to say, I haven't found the perfect one yet. But that's the cool thing about when we talk about creativity and even part, I mean, art is theft. So if you're taking parts out of different game systems and mixing them together to find the style of play that you like the best or that best suits you and your players, then, I mean, you're doing it right, right? Yeah. I mean, for me, I mean, the biggest thing I've discovered in the last 18 months since I started podcasting is that there is a difference between the rules, um, the world, or what some people call the setting, and what I call the game structure, how the game is playing. Um, and the clearest and simplest example of this is, you know, if I'm playing Dungeons & Dragons in a, in a dungeon adventure, doing the dungeon 
delve thing. That's the structure. And I'm doing that in, I don't know, in the world of Kalmata, for example, right? Now, we could change any of those three elements. We can play GURPS in Kalmata doing that dungeon. And it will be different because GURPS as an engine has a slightly different flavor and feel to it. But actually, it'll still be the same world and the same kind of you know dungeon adventure experience. We could change the dungeon adventure to a wilderness adventure and do hex crawl and use that. And that changes the game itself fundamentally, but it doesn't matter what rules particularly we're using. I would suggest that some rule sets fit better with certain types of game, um, mm-hmm. but I don't think you know you, there's any barrier to trying out any combination. And for me, I think one of the exciting things in the last 18 months has been playing with those that triangle. Um, I've been delving into a few different worlds and creating a few i've been playing with the different structures and, and being quite methodical about that i start a dungeon now i'm doing hex i'm ready to do mystery i'm about to run a monster hunters game in, a, in about a week's time doing a bit of a mystery um and and you know i played different game systems and i've settled my system a bit which is in gurps now but i i just think that that's a fascinating thing to play with and I, I guess the only thing that frustrates me so much in the game community is this focus on the game system, you know, and tinkering around with the system all the time and playing about talking about all of the me- mechanisms, all of the details of that, and just kind of not really thinking as much about world and the game you're trying to play, the, the structure of it, if you know what I mean. Um, I feel like there's a lot people could get from their game that's not just about tinkering with the rule system. Yeah, I uh, I mean, there's certain people that like doing that. They enjoy tinkering with the rules um, and making characters maybe as much or more than they actually enjoy playing the game. And mm. I mean, that's awesome that these games have the ability to uh, offer that to players. I mean, obviously, the certain type of player is going to like GURPS or Hero System because of that, because they have so many more tools that they can really fine tune exactly the type of character they're making. Hmm. Uh, holy cow, I lost what I was talking about. I don't even know if that has anything to do with what you asked me. But No, it does. Uh, we, were, we were just talking about like, the, the difference between you know, tinkering with rules and focusing oh, on yeah. the world or the, the kind of game you're playing. Yeah, I mean, I guess I did answer it, but that is exactly true. So those are all things that are possible. Yeah, for me, you know, the, the, there's a massive difference in in how a game, a role playing game, can feel if I've confined myself to the, a dungeon, for example, or whether I am playing um, a quite social game, which is, uh, uh, I don't know, a sort of procedural mystery or something. You know, that's in, or maybe it's high court intrigue. You know, and we're trying to figure out who killed the king. Um, that game, the the way in which you would play that game, it, you know, as opposed to the sort of traditional, original kind of dungeon crawl, that's an incredibly different experience at the table. And and it requires different skills, I would suggest, you know, in the same way that whether I take my paintbrush and try to paint a, on, the, on the canvas, you know, uh, with paint and, and oil or whatever, um, as to whether I pick out a chisel and start trying to, like, you know, shape stone, that the incredibly different um, experiences, but I don't know, it's still about expression of ideas, right? Yeah, absolutely. And here's a question for you when you're running your, cause I mean, even say BX or OSE, they talk about this shift in play in the tiers of play. And I mm. think five E has tried to do that, but I think they've changed it kind of that. It's just the same overall game. But anyway, back to my original point is, how is a GM who is good at, you know, 
making hex crawls or dungeon delves, now you get more deeper in play where the characters want to make a, uh, their own fort and they want to get involved with the other Lords. Hmm. How do you even go about that? As, as I've been GMing for, I don't know, since 78, however long ago that was, uh, maybe I wasn't <laughs> GMing then, but in 80, at least, uh, when I was 10 is when I was started GMing probably more, but I have not have those skills of characters having uh, up into the, the third level spells. So fifth, sixth level, I've very rarely had any characters ever that high. And so now I'm getting those in my games, like my Lost in Agata game or uh, Kalmata. People are reaching that tier of play now, and it mm. makes me even more you know, uncomfortable with that sort of play. And I'm not saying it's not fun or I'm not going to do it because if you're not learning, you're dying in my opinion. Uh, but those, like you say, are very different skills. It's a completely different skill set. Or if people want to just hang out in the city for a while, how do you run, you know, this kind of criminally type uh, gang interaction game compared to going out into a dungeon, you know, very, very different. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I'm talking about with the structure of your game. You know, what is it that you're trying to do? How does it play at the table? I mean, the fundamental question is, you know, what are the characters doing and how do the players do it? Um, so, uh, you know, in a dungeon game, what are the what are the characters doing? They're going to the dungeon killing monsters, taking their treasure, you know, learning the, the trade of adventuring. How do the players do it? Well, they basically go in the dungeon, they pick a direction, they search rooms, they attack monsters, they you know, loot the place and come out. Um, when we get to the high kind of high society game where, you know, I'm now knife level and I've, I've got my, my land and I'm trying to now, you know, maybe prize some kind of favor out of the king. How do, what is my character trying to do? I'm trying to like, influence the king. How does a player do it? Um, actually, I'm with you. I I don't actually really know. I've never played a game like that. And but it's on me, I think, as a GM if I'm for my players are getting there to go and find out. And that's where I feel like maybe exploring other uh, games and things that people have created through the years where you can go and say, as you earlier said, steal the those structures, those approaches. That's really key, I think, to becoming better and better at our art of being games masters. Yeah, ab for sure. I didn't want to say absolutely again. Dang it, I did anyway. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've even like I was asking some of my other buddies who are obviously game masters. It seems like uh, online most people are game masters as well, which I think maybe ups the level of play compared to maybe just at your regular the regular face-to-face -face guy who never goes online or to conventions, you're yeah. learning things as you go. And so those experiences help your game. But I was asking them, I'm like, Hey, what do you think about running this, uh, running a game like the Sopranos or um, I can't even think of the, that British show with uh, <laughs> the red hand. What is that? You know what I'm talking about? No, no idea, but Hey, it doesn't matter. Oh, Peaky, Peaky Blinders is what it is. So, yeah, if you want your D&D &D game to model Peaky Blinders, it's not like you're going to be, you know, searching down treasure in tombs and stuff. And you want to create this uh, interplay between the different criminal f factions in your setting. What do I do as a GM? What are those stories look like? Where do I start? What kind of hooks do I drop for the players? And uh, one guy actually said, you need to go find this Shadowrun generator. 
this hook generator yeah. for Shadowrun. So now we're using a completely different system and genre setting everything to uh, inform, you know, my D&D game or my low fantasy gaming game. So it's pretty odd. And I think you can even see that more and more often, like with downtime tables, they're kind mm. of edging towards that because you may not do all those things. They're written in a way that you don't necessarily do them on stage or in front of the camera. They're just roles. And then you have things happen to you, but there isn't any reason that that type of game can't focus on those things. And actually those are what's on stage. And maybe if you're sending some of your underlings to go uh, rob a tomb, those aren't even on stage anymore because the type of game you're running is all about these criminal factions and how they interact with each other. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's what excites me. I mean, one of the things that frustrates me about the way role-playing games are written increasingly is that they don't give the GM those tools. They don't tell us how to do even the simplest things like run a D, you know, D&D doesn't anymore really tell us how to run a dungeon. It it gives us some game rules and some clues. I guess you can piece it together, but it relies so you know, so much in our in our field relies on, you know, the, the passing on you know word of mouth the traditions are handed down you know and that's there's nothing wrong with that per se but what i'm finding is that if i can go to a game and find some little tool you know that essentially helps me to figure out how to run a particular type of game then i can steal that so for example when i read call of cthulhu and i was listening i was talking to andy goodman a lot about this when he was running call of cthulhu um that that is the archetype of the mystery game if you're running anything that you know where they are hunting down clues and they are trying to solve a mystery then call of cthulhu is your game and if you look at how the advice in there and it's pretty good um you can port that advice into your DD game and you can run you know not call of cthulhu uh, mysteries but mysteries you know and it works really really well and like you said with Shadowrun, i i massive you know massive fan of the the setting not so much of a fan of the rules but there's nothing to stop me taking the setting and some of the tools and running it with GURPS for example or running it with D&D or whatever because those things that they can be plugged in and out I think you know you can use the tools in different ways yeah those are different tools for play they're not necessarily the system that you're talking about it's the tools for play and to get back on one of your points that you made earlier is that designers aren't writing complete games anymore, which is kind of horrific when you think about it. Because, I mean, you look at BX and it has basic and expert and those came out fairly quickly and there's 68 pages or something. That's a complete game. And you compare that to Dungeon Crawl Classics, which are both games I love to play and I love both communities. There's nothing against those. But there is nothing in Dungeon Crawl Classics that tells you how to run adventures in the wilderness there's nothing there's no rules whatsoever about is it going to be a hex crawl is it going to be a point crawl or this is the process that you should use because like you say people are uh, designers are really just counting on uh, cultural knowledge to help out that you've already but if you just pick that book up it's almost going to be impossible and in their defense I mean, D&D felt like that when I first started playing too, when I was that age, it was like, if I didn't have other people teaching me how to play, I don't know if I ever would have really grokked it. 
I was reading um, Expert yesterday. Um, I actually been thinking about stealing the the map that's in there. You know, the, the known world, what became the known world, Mistara. And then I got I got flipping through the pages of how to run a wilderness game because at, at Expert, that's when you start doing that. And then I remembered, of yep. course, I, I started you know with Beckme when my Dungeons and Dragons experience started with the basic Expert Companion Master Immortals set. Um, now I never got anywhere near the Masters and Immortals, but I have the companion set and again as we're talking about the phases of play the tiers of play you know you move through dungeoning levels one to three um levels four through to about 14 um that's your expert that's your wilderness exploration and that tops out then when you get to companion you're starting to build your um your land and interact at a much kind of much higher political level and so on and so on through now i think those tools you know that were created is it mensa um they're kind of created back in the day they are timeless and i'm thinking if you're listening to us and you're thinking what you're on about i absolutely think you should go to you know drive through rpg.com and download for five dollars the companion book or you know the basic the expert you know companion all those through and just have a look at not the the minutiae of like new new um uh, weapons or new spells or that kind of stuff but actually at the what is the game here you know and how is it played because they can be ported into anything yeah you could also try rules encyclopedia which is taking all the stuff from Beckme and putting it into one book that was uh edited by aaron alston so those are that's great advice what do you think of in the barriers then um you know in play for sort of more artistic expression in the game i think the biggest barrier is well, there's two. The, f- the primary barrier, the problem is there isn't a lot of information in the actual game design, in the books themselves on how to be a good player. It just kind of lets that stuff kind of swing by in most of the games that I've read. And so GMs don't even necessarily know how to teach players how to be good players or how to be good for their specific game. Um, if I was going to say one book, it's really a GM book. Uh, I would say, um, <laughs> now I forgot what the name of the book is. <laughs> uh, I can picture it in my head though. We'll just have to put that. <laughs> this is the best one, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. <laughs> uh, what I'll do is I'll try and like get it out of your head later and put it in the show notes or something. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. The best game, uh, guest book I've come is GM book I've come across actually on the topic, which discusses the player GM um, interaction is actually game mastering, um, which is a really old kind of free uh, book. Um, and I can't remember who wrote it now because, you know, that's the way memory goes when you're nearly 50. Yeah. But um, again, I'll stick it in the notes. But that talks about like the the conversation between player and GM. It's encouraging GMs to really have a proper conversation with your players about the expectations and also about the character and um, what you, you, you what they want to do with the character. And it guides the GM to say, well, you know, actually – what your player puts on their character sheet, what they uh, what they put into their character, that's telling you what they want from the game. And I guess that's the first step, isn't it? Like to get on the same page about what you want out of the game. Yes, communication is always the first and best step between any problem, I believe. Here it is, Arbiter of Worlds. There you go. So it was Arbiter of Worlds, and I'll now edit all that back. <laughs> <laughs> if you want, so I don't mind. 
So let's have you say that sentence again then. So the best book you've come across. <laughs> I think one of the best books I've come across for this particular issue, which is really talking about player agency and how to drive player agency is Arbiter of Worlds. Right. Okay. Yeah. I've read that. It's good. All right. So you agree. Nice. I do. No, hands down. That's a good book. What was the second barrier? GMs themselves not teaching players the ways that they want them to interact because they don't necessarily know how to tell them. They know what they're looking for, but they don't mm. know how to explain it. Because, I mean, it's taken us an hour, right? So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so GMs teaching players the wrong bad habits, I think, is uh, the second barrier. Yeah, okay. So it, it's kind of interesting, isn't it, that basically nobody has a clue how to play well is what we're saying. Uh, I would I I think that's true. There's occasionally like back in the days of G plus been people who thought, hey, it's important. We should tell people how to play. But I I don't think I see it enough. Most of the time it's lazy GM. It's, you know, how how I do the game mastering, how I do these things. But play is just play because they're waiting on the GM to do everything for them in that way. So, Mm. yeah, it's kind of interesting. I um. I mean, I've been holding back on like what I offer to my players because of this seriousness. You know, like you talked about right at the start of this whole thing, we talked about this sense of, well, I would want to take my game, well, I feel like I take my game more seriously. And um, I hold back. I kind of try to do two things. I try to deliver for my players what I think they want. Um, and I'm not entirely sure that I'm right about what I believe they want because the more I probe this, the the more that becomes... You know, questionable i think that maybe they do want more um but as you just suggested maybe it is that we just don't know how to get there you know um but the second thing was that i feel like it's sort of selfish of me to uh impose what i want you know and sort of try and demand more of my players um that feels selfish to me and therefore i try not to do it do you have similar feelings or or worries yeah that's why I talk about it on my podcast and not to my players. <laughs> Maybe you guys will listen to me talk about this on random screen and then you'll want to change it. Uh, but, you know, there's always multiple things for everything. There's the way we see it, like the way we think we see it, the way we perceive that we are doing it, the way we are actually doing it and the way the other people are perceiving it. So it's always an issue whenever because that's the problem with it being collaborative, right? What do you think we could, I mean, what could players do? I mean, I'm willing to bet that, you know, there's going to be a lot of people listening to this and they are players, not necessarily GMs. So, or they, they maybe they're GMs who play in other people's games. You know, that's quite common in the online community mm-hmm. we have here on Anchor. So what can they do to help everyone at the table get more from that role-playing experience? See, that's, that's the question. That's why nobody's written these books, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> so uh, I think... There's a few things that you can do. You can take the time to know your character and know what happened last session. Hmm. So whatever that looks like, going over your notes, um, rewatching, you know, that Twitch stream or on YouTube, uh, any of those things will help know your character uh, mechanically. So know what all the spells do. Know what your character can do, you know, get system mastery as far as your character is. You don't have to know the whole system, just what your character can do. Hmm. And uh, so know your character, uh, know 
the last session that's happening and know what your character wants to do. If you are familiar with your character and as familiar with the setting as your character is, then you should be able to do anything. Now you're just reacting. You don't have a ton of things as a player in an old school game, especially that you're required to do. Most of the time, all you are is seeing the world through the eyes of your character. You're not necessarily making up uh, narrative aspects like a GM is. So you really only have this one focus, this one layer that you're on. And so try to be the best you can be on that layer. You know, don't necessarily worry about mechanics or rules uh, in as far as just knowing what they are, whatever they are, house rules or however it works. I think Mm -hmm. if you can do those things, those three things really, and they're all character specific, then uh, you've done your due diligence as a player. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's really important. I think that um, the amount of times I've, I kind of come to the table as a, a games master and I've prepped a lot you know, and I've put time in and then I kind of sense that my players have just sort of rocked up to my house or I popped up online, <laughs> you know, and, and they just, they're just there. And they kind of like, look at me as if to say, yeah, so what were we doing? And they can't, obviously two weeks have passed or whatever, or a week has passed, or even, you know, they slept once. So they can't remember, but I haven't, they clearly haven't taken the time. And I feel, I mean, personally, I'm just going to say this, I know this will upset some people, but I just feel like I wasted my time. You know, I feel like, oh, I might as well not bothered. I might as well have been the lazy GM and just kind of picked a couple of scenes in my head that I could throw in front of them in some random kind of way and we'll just roll dice and and that. And, and, you know, we just beer and pretzel it, which is okay if that's what I was expecting, but it wasn't what I was expecting, yeah? Yeah, that's what disappointment stems from is expectations. And so, I mean, you obviously have to let your players know what your expectations are, and then they have to want to do it. Like I've lost uh, really good friends as players because of this. Mm. That have basically said, hey, I don't really want it. And they like, well, all I want is a beer and pretzels game. I just want to let off steam. I don't want to have to do homework. And like you say, it is just like that. They just rolled out of bed, tossed on a shirt, turned on their computer. I'm here, entertain me. And I don't really mm. believe it's the GM job to be solely entertainer i think it's it's a collaborative effort which is i mean been my focus the whole time i think yeah absolutely i'm with you on that now i feel that there's something extra as well because for me um and i just realized this in this conversation so it's wonderful we're having this conversation and i just realized this but for me it's i want my players to them when they get into the situation to start asking questions and i want them to not be worried about whether i have the answer no, yeah, that is exactly it. Make make me come up with the answer or we'll come up with it together, but don't you don't be reluctant about asking the question because if we don't ask it in play then it never happened as far as we're concerned and then that just puts us back on uneven footing again and you know not sure we're in limbo I I like to say. And in limbo you're not going in any direction. You're just treading water and eventually you're not going to be able to tread anymore. Yeah, now I feel like with this questions thing, obviously my players could do me a favor. So if they're going to ask me something that is quite deep or perhaps going to require me to, in an ideal world, to have prepared it, then obviously shooting me an email or talking to me before the game, long before the game, you know, before I sit and prep about, this is actually something I'd like to explore. Can I ask you this question? Um, And being patient enough with me to say, 
you know, to allow me to say, okay, I'm going to go and figure that out and we'll do that at the table, you know, and I will present the answer if you like at table. Um, but I feel like that would be really great. You know, if I was to have players who said, you know, well, go back to the Dungeons of Thal, for example, you know, um, that it was great when you have you have players who are digging into the scene and they're like tinkering around. I remember you playing with a lever, for example, and really digging around that and then asking questions and exploring that idea. Um, And that was great and fun in and of itself. And then there was one time when we found the dead body of a dwarf. I don't know if you remember. Yeah. And what was wonderful was the questions you started to ask about that, which I um, didn't need to answer immediately, but did go away and answer. You know, now we never, it's never come up again since. So, but that, <laughs> probably because sense, I haven't played. <laughs> no, no, but it doesn't. But no, actually, it didn't matter. And you know what it did? And nobody knows this, but what it did is it generated the next level of the dungeon um, because the answer to the question you asked forced me to really think about where, you know, this was going. And it, I generated the next thing I generated and created the next level of the, as I was getting, you know, getting around to that. Um, was built around the answers to those questions, which no one's at the moment has ever seen. Um, so they don't really exist in one sense. But for me as a GM, I know, and I have that answer simply because of the questions that you as a player asked. Now, what I guess I'm asking of players is, do not be afraid to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm totally down with asking uh, questions, even if they are uncomfortable and I don't know the answers. There are times when it can get tedious, uh, but like anything, you know, we have to have patience with each other and uh, make us figure out what we need to know in order. Because, I mean, we're taught as a GM, at least in my experience, I'm constantly tossing things out there as they come to me or as I've prepped them. But I don't really know what you are interested, you as in the royal player. So. Mm you have to let me know. And the way you let me know is by asking those questions, like what avenue of exploration are you interested in? And therefore I will focus my energies in that direction. Yeah. And and this is like the opposite way around to how a lot of people, uh, in my perception anyway, a lot of people come to the table with the the sitting down and going, okay, what are we doing? You know, the the players are looking at me as if to say, so what's the, you know, what's the plot? What's the story? Where are we going? What are we doing? What's the goal? Um, and I find it so difficult uh, when I want to sort of, I'm, I'm actually sitting there waiting for them to tell me what the goal is, you know, um, because that's going to drive us deeper into the world that we're exploring and the characters that we're exploring. Yeah, the chicken or the egg. Basically, we want to know as a GM what what avenue or what facet of this setting do you want to know about what do you want to interact with i don't want to i can't make everything i can do it in broad strokes but i want to know what the finer detail is going to be and that is going to be decided by that campaign or that group of players for sure and now i'm thinking about um adapting and using pre-written setting um so if i was if i was to be really honest again um right now i the world I want to go and explore the most is Han, which has been around since about 83, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure you'll be aware of it. That It's the map. You know, it's that big hex map of the island of Han. And I know there is just a, a truck ton of detail information out there. Now, I've wanted for a very long while to go exploring that island, um, but I've held back because of this issue, this kind of thing of, I don't want to go there and play beer and pretzels you know, 
murder hobo slash and hack and slash kind of game. You know, I want to, if I go to that place, I want to go explore it. And um, so I've, I'll, I'll admit, I've held back as a GM, even going near reading the stuff, particularly because every time I do, I get excited and I want to, I want to prep it, I want to do it, uh, and I just feel like even if I had players who were up for coming, that they wouldn't necessarily come with that same intention. Um, I don't know. Have you experienced that kind of that kind of barrier of I want to try something, but I don't think anyone's going to come with me? Yeah, there's a there's a few aspects of that using existing uh, IP or intellectual property that I that I have some reluctance myself. Not exactly what you have, but that's a that's part of it. So I don't think I can talk about Harn without talking about the GM that I had when I played in a Harn setting, who is Carl Rodriguez. He is uh, he's always on the audio dungeon discord. In fact, he is running a Harn game right now on audio dungeon discord. So he, he's a guy who very deeply got into the, the IP of Harn. So there's a, there's, it's a two edged sword. One of the edges is you want people to be as invested in the setting and that intellectual property as you are as a GM. The problem you can have is when you do find those people is now they know as much or more than you do about the setting. And what you're saying is not going to be accurate for them. So now you might have some canon issues, but those are easily figured out uh, through communication and saying, Hey, your harm may not be my harm, but these things are, these things are true. You know, these are the true things as far as we mm-hmm. know them uh, upfront. You would have to, you have to set the expectations with the players. Hey, I want you guys to be as interested in Orball and all these uh, factions and just the lore that is Harn. When I do a game like this, normally the easiest way, because I know players are not wanting to read a truckload of lore or background on a setting, just like I don't always want to read that on their character sheets for background, but I don't think that my players want to read anything most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm really sounding disrespectful, but honestly, I can even write like a, a two or three paragraph, really short kind of brief thing, and I'll guarantee you that someone at the table hasn't read it. Um, oh, that's true. So, you know, we're talking about homework again, aren't we? And 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 I guess that's okay as long as uh, you know. I don't know. It makes me not makes me not want to bother but i guess it's okay if i know that i've got those players you know uh, i can kind of fill it in in the three paragraphs i can exposit if i have to i guess yeah that's the homework aspect um but i do believe that you can if you have the characters come from a familiar area to an area they're not familiar with so they don't have to know that information mm. that's one of the things like in midlands I can just say, all right, all of you guys are from the island of Varnor, and it's basically a Viking uh, analog, and you're coming to a new area. So no one knows anything until you learn it or until we uh, exposit it at the table, like rune, uh, like the rune reader. I can't remember what they're called now. Rune bearers, rune seekers, because you mm-hmm. have played one yourself, and I asked you, hey, what do you think of this? And then we yeah. added that and made that canon as we went. But you still are going to want people to take the energy and the creative uh, 
motivation or direction to at least know their character's place. That's basically saying the same thing I said before. That's what you want to do. Give that expectation up front. Say, okay, you know, you are from this area. This is what you need to know. And these are the chapters. I don't care if you read it this session, but you need to know that within a few sessions because I don't even know hardly my character usually uh, when I create them. They come out through play and how they interact, how they react to things. And then I try to stay consistent with that uh, through play because I like that consistency. I want this character to have it and it may shift and change. And the focus uh, may, you know, why here and there. And I'm going to have to make decisions because I also like moral dilemmas as a player. I want to have to think and learn and explore my character as much as I'm exploring your dungeon or your, you know, the setting of your uh, campaign. Yeah. And thinking about it as well, I mean, I've um, long been drawn, and I think this comes from playing the Ultima computer games back in about (laughs) early 1980s, but I've long been drawn to, again, dealing with introducing you to an IP of going, that whole thing of going through a portal to a different world, you know, that portal fantasy thing. Yep. Um, now I know there will be people rolling their eyes as, as I say this because I know why you know some people just hate that idea, but for me the idea of you know maybe um, uh, you know you're going to create a character and then that character is entering a completely new world and knows nothing for me that offers some creative opportunities. You know exactly that thing of you don't need to know my EP, you don't need to have read anything. You know you're here, Bing, you've arrived, and um, you know nothing. I mean, one of my favorite kind of campaign starts from way back, um, and I haven't done it in a very, very long while, is that the characters have actually died and the gods have decided that they get a new body. And I've asked people to create um, a bit of an idea of a character, you know, their, if you like, their intellectual, their spiritual kind of elements. But I've then given them a completely different body. Perhaps we've regenerated, regenerated a character and we focused on randomly generating the physical characteristics and you get something new. Um, and that has worked really well for me with a fantasy IP that they're not familiar with, you know. Um, but of course, it, again, it's down to not everyone's comfortable with doing that. Some people feel they want to be embedded in a world. So I know that it's not one size fixed all. Yeah, it's the chicken or the egg problem. Like, hey, guys, I want to start this new campaign. What are you guys interested in so I can form my concepts around what you want? Then, hey, well, what's your campaign about? So then I can think about what my interests are. And so now it's like you're you're at a standstill again. I've experienced that many times. Yeah. Um, how can we overcome it? Um, I guess either we, I mean, usually we as GMs are expected to initiate it, aren't we? And sort of make some yes. decisions. What if we turned that on its head? What kind of things could players do to help us, you know, and initiate? Yeah, I've asked, I've asked that before and tried to do it. And I think it kind of depends on the player. Some players are really excited about that. And if you get too many players like that, then they're going to be so varied that it may be hard to bring all these ideas into a single thing, which can be a problem. But then at least you have some things to pick and choose from as a GM, which will then help you, you know, harden your concepts or at least focus your ideas. So, and you can take as many as you can, maybe like a one piece from each uh, player or something. So I know uh, Tim Kask, he runs a game like at Gary Connor, a convention. Uh, I think, 
uh, Matt Finch will do this as well. He'll go around the table and ask everyone just one thing. What's one thing that you want to be in this game? And then he'll take all of them and make that happen at some point. And that's Mm -hmm. his enjoyment or where they get their enjoyment in the game. And that's them as players like we've spoken about. So you could kind of do that for a campaign as well as just a one-shot game. Yeah, you know, so... What you're saying is going to go around and say, well, I might say, oh, I definitely want there to be dragons in this. I want to kill a dragon or I want to fight a dragon or I interact with a dragon, you know. And then you can say, right, go away and I've got to make sure there's dragons somewhere in the setting. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, exactly. You can say that. I mean, you could make a whole race of dragons and ha- tell a story about how dragons were created or how mm. dragons were gone and now they're back. Or there's a lot of things that you can do just by someone saying, hey, I think it's really I really want to do this as I've never played high level characters and I've never really fought dragons. I want to make a campaign out of that. OK, then we can do that. And this is what it looks like. And then, you know, that I, some people may do that in a session zero. So a session zero isn't necessarily just the GM. Uh, dropping a bunch of exposition about what he wants and what his expectations are. You could do this and it could be the player's expectations as well. And that's going to make a better social contract in the long run, which everyone knows. If we all know what the expectations are, then we're purposely not doing them. So you're not going to at least be frustrated by that, you know, and I think Mm. that's a big frustration for me in my games, which all goes back to, you know, games as art. And that's why am I taking it too seriously or am I not taking it too seriously? Where, where does that line lie and how do you converse intelligently about it with players? I've just been thinking as well about uh, like I'm wanting to go into Han. I'll be honest with you. The reason I want to go to Han is the map. And I've been thinking about like we talked about stealing from rules and we talked about you know taking from uh, different kind of games, different tools and different stuff like that. Is there anything wrong with just taking the map of a world or I don't know, taking um, out of the setting some elements and saying to the players, we're not going to use the whole canon. You know, I might actually just, I'm going to use the maps. There might be bits and pieces I'm going to cherry pick here, but actually don't worry about the whole canon of what's been created in this IP. We're just going to you know, take some bits from it and, and build something from that. Could that work? I, I believe that it should work and it would be absolutely fine with me. That would be us finding out what your concept of Harn is and why not? I mean, Maps for inspiration have been uh, a timeless aspect of this uh, hobby for sure. I mean, I've done it multiple times uh, just as a kid pouring over the Greyhawk maps when they there was only the, the paragraph about each little area and you just endlessly thought about, oh, what could this be or how could that be or what was the sea of dust and what would it be like, you know, having a campaign in the sea of dust or I want to have a game that's outside in dark sun as opposed to just inside or just it's endless. And I think wherever you take your inspiration from is a good thing. There is no bad, wrong inspiration. There's just inspiration. Let's try and tie this together. Okay. And uh, <laughs> we've been on a, we've been on a long journey, haven't we? Talking about the desire to take our game more seriously to seeing the, the instance of play as the medium for expression, you know, that the, What's happening at the table is what is real. We've talked about the tools. Come on, Hobbs, pull it together for us. What are we saying? What have we decided? Uh, we're doomed to frustration because no players will. No, I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> this is a call to you guys. I need to completely revamp my player base. Uh, call me at uh, 8675309 and tell me 
Uh, no, I, I'm ter- <laughs> I can't say I'm good at bringing it all together, but uh, I think w- the important things are is there is no too serious for you. Everyone should be able to play and uh, enjoy their games the way that they want to. And if you're frustrated, talk to your friends and see if you can figure it out. And uh, just like in business, if you uh, want to change the way your game is, get more friends. <laughs> Does that help? <laughs> I think so. I think, I mean, I definitely think that uh, I, I've spent a lot of time as a, a you know, as a, as a gamer, looks far too many years uh, with a gap between the world in my head and the things I wanted to do mm. and the games I wanted to play and what I was bringing to the table. I've held back for so long, you know, on what I want to bring to the table. And what I think I'm discovering is actually the assumptions I make about my friends and the people who want to come to my table. First of all, they're often wrong. And the second thing is that there are dozens more people out there anyway who might just be interested in what you're you're doing you just have to i think stick your neck out and Mm -hmm. take a chance yeah put yourself out there for sure it'll i agree with you you what you think players want and what they a lot of times people are doing what they think you want what the gm wants and they don't even realize like we talk about it's just this ignorance that exists right now and the only way to get past it is you know exploring ideas together and communicating and i feel like maybe i need to write the book for players because <laughs> it's obvious that there isn't one uh yeah there's not a great one there i mean there are some blogs out there and you can find them um maybe i'll get try and get you a list or something but i have seen that because mm. it goes in cycles and so, sometimes it's like oh there's not enough stuff about players and so a bunch of people write things about that and then it's like well you can't have games without good GM. So the, now we got to write GM books, but they're, they're a little more esoteric and obscure to find as opposed to, you know, the next secret of ghost marsh or salt marsh or whatever. Those things are way out there more often and more people are talking about them. Mr. Hobbs, it's been brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on the show and having a good old chat about this. Um, any last words? parting is such sweet sorrow shit thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it Uh, now i'm gonna have to actually listen to one of your long shows (laughs) (laughs) Uh, this one might end up being two i think it's fantastic oh uh, well i like i say i really appreciate it it is wonderful to find someone out there who takes uh is a serious gamer serious business like myself so thank you jason hobbs thanks so much for your time Game on, man. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Roleplay Rescue. Thanks again to Jason Hobbs from Hobbs and Friends slash Random Screed for coming to talk about playing too seriously. And thank you for listening to us chatting. Yeah, it was a long one. And, uh, well, you know what? I'm not going to make any apology. I thought it was a fab interview. So thank you, Jason, so, so much. Don't forget, because we are an Anchor podcast, you can drop me a voice message if you have any comments or questions. And if you've enjoyed listening to Jason, well, please consider sharing the episode on social media. I'm Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. See you again next weekend. Game on.